to the Run, Eat, Repeat podcast. If you love running or eating, you'll love this show. Now, here's your host, Monica Olivas. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that it's so freezing, I would a thousand percent want to run the Mount Everest Marathon. Luckily, I don't have to because I'm talking to someone that just did it and I am asking them all the questions. It's super interesting and fun. I'm talking with Holly Zimmerman today. If you're new here, before we get into all of that, my name is Monica. I am the creator of runeatrepeat.com, a site I started to document training for my first marathon and weight loss journey. It was something I had struggled with my entire life, but I managed to lose some weight run some marathons. And now Running Repeat is an online community where I share my tips, tools, personal stories that are often embarrassing with you in an effort to help you get healthy, get faster and have fun. Hopefully today will be fun. At least this part of your day, especially if you're running. Hope you're having a great run right now. But like I said, I'm talking with Holly Zimmerman all about the Mount Everest Marathon. Ask her a ton of questions from what the bathroom situation is, to what shoes she was wearing. But before we get into all of that, let's warm up. Okay, for today's warm up, I just wanted to respond to a couple of questions that I've gotten from last episode. First, I referenced the minimalism documentary, which I've talked about a lot. And I did realize that anytime I talk about it, someone chimes in and asks about it. So I haven't really specified. The official title for this is Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. And it's available on Netflix worldwide. Worldwide. What, people? And I double checked that. I looked it up. So yes, I'm a fan of this. I want to share some sort of disclaimer in that it's not like this completely life-changing documentary that you're going to watch and there's going to be like tears down your eyes. You have this whole new outlook on life necessarily. It just resonated with me for some reason. And actually, someone told me about it. And I think it's it definitely has a bigger impact on me than it had on the person that recommended it. It really just spoke to me because I think of my love languages. And now I'm going to reference something else that's going to confuse everyone. But there's a book called The Five Love Languages, and I will put a link in the show notes. You can actually take this quiz to figure out what your love language is. I am talking about this. I am on this random tangent because I think part of why the minimalism documentary really spoke with me is that I am not big on gifts or material things. And I know that obviously because I'm not big on wanting material things. I mean, I don't have a Christmas list. I don't ever want anything for special occasions. And I thought that was like weird kind of. And then I took the love languages quiz and I realized that receiving gifts is a love language that sometimes this is how someone feels appreciated or loved. And if someone is that love language, it is good to give them gifts. That is not me. The five love languages are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. 
Like I said, I will put a link in the show notes so you can check this out. I think this is actually so important and so helpful for relationships, all the relationships in your life, especially if you really love it when someone uh, spends some quality time with you, but they really love it if you really praise what they are doing, right? If you don't realize that and you're trying to be kind and loving to someone by buying them a gift or by spending time with them, but they really need to hear words that make them feel like you love them, that's going to be lost. It's kind of almost like on some level a wasted effort because they are not feeling what you are trying to give. I am saying all of this to get back to my point that I took this quiz for the love languages and I am basically a four-way tie between every other love language except receiving gifts. So I think that also says a lot about me. I'm just like, you know, give me all of the things, affirmation, acts of service, quality time, physical touch, but the gifts, And getting back to this documentary, it really spoke to me because I don't need a lot of things. I always say I'm not fancy. And this reminded me of it. And it also kind of championed it, right? By saying, hey, we don't need so much stuff. And when these people that they followed streamlined it, they became, in theory, happier. At the same time, I am very live and let live. Like if that is your jam, if you love fancy purses or cars or I don't know what else is not, I don't know what, (laughs) what other gifts do people like? I think that works too. And so I kind of hesitate to really push this documentary because I don't necessarily think everyone needs to live like this because it's also dumb to feel guilty about something that genuinely makes you happy. And if some gift or thing, or I don't know, something that someone would consider a material item really just is like the most awesome thing to you. And it does really just light you up, go for it. Like I spend a ton of money on running races and someone else would think, why the heck would you do that? You know that those streets you can run on for free any other day of the year, right? Like that doesn't really make sense, but it is everything to me. It is what just completely makes me happy and it makes my heart just burst with excitement and purpose and just like, this is my favorite thing. And so I don't want someone to judge me on that either, right? So we all have our thing, I'm just giving like a very long-winded disclaimer with maybe a little mention because like I said, I really do love the love languages. I just want to (laughs) say, even though I always talk about it, I really just like the moral of the story, the overall vibe of the minimalist movie. Um, It is a very extreme version for sure. And like, I mean... Like most documentaries that have on some level an agenda or a moral that they are really trying to get you to end with, the examples are extreme. You know, they're talking about these people that are making 
six figures and just walk away from it and only have the things in their backpack and are just walking through life without anything weighing them down. Come on now. You know, I'm not trying to live in a tent necessarily. Um, but because where would I charge my phone? Really? At the same time, I don't need a lot of things. And so for me to not feel obligated to buy certain things or to keep certain things and realizing like if someone gives me something and it was done from a place of love, but it's making me feel like I have too many things and frazzled and anxious or whatever, I can, from a place of love, appreciate it and pass it on to someone else. You know, this is getting a little too deep. All I wanted to say is I dig the movie. It's on Netflix. But it's basically like you don't need a lot of stuff. Let me know what you think about it. Um, Yeah. And let me know what your love languages are. And we can talk about that next time. Next. Everyone was super awesome. I got so many supportive, positive comments from the last episode in which I shared that I declared email bankruptcy. Um, I really appreciate that. And just in general, a lot of people are like, people get time off for their jobs. And it's not ridiculous. And it is an odd situation when um, not only I guess, are you an entrepreneur, but you are also kind of the like personality behind what you're doing. Um, I don't know how to describe this. But basically, a lot of people made me feel good about losing my shit in that. Yeah, that's okay. And anyone would if they were going nonstop. I appreciate that. I appreciate every single comment. And yeah, thank you. Next, someone asked, well, multiple people asked, and I don't know why, because I don't think I talked about this last time. Maybe it was about something that I posted on Instagram randomly. But a lot of people asked what my coffee order is. I don't know. Um, And usually I just get an iced coffee with stevia and milk. Um, If I'm somewhere with a fancy creamer, I would super use that. My favorite coffee is often after a half marathon or marathon, one of my favorite things to do is to go to like AM, PM or another little gas station mini mart like that not a gas station that has like nothing but one that has full-on you know soft drinks and coffee because they have those little creamers that are really good and I get a huge one because I'm often cold with that's like one of the few times when I will drink hot coffee and finally oh I just posted my summer running gear must-haves. And I was kind of torn about this. You can actually chime in in the show notes and let me know what you think. I did an IGTV video and posted about it. I will put a link to it. All of the things from top to bottom that I think really are my must-haves for running in super hot weather, especially if you're training for anything. I just think it is really important to have gear that helps you and doesn't weigh you down or add to chafing or add to being uncomfortable, anything like that. So I have a list of those. And I was kind of going back and forth on whether or not to make that a podcast episode. So let me know what you think. Um, I love multitasking, but I also think it's kind of hard 
because I put links to all of my favorite things in that post that if I'm giving you a suggestion, but I'm just kind of talking about it in your ear, are you really going to remember the name of it to look it up later? I don't know. Let me know what you think. How about that? Okay. And like I said, if you have any questions for me, feel free to send them on over. And yeah, let's go. Now I'm super excited to welcome back Holly Zimmerman to the Runny Repeat podcast. I spoke with her in episode 80 about her book, Ultramarathon Mom, From the Sahara to the Arctic. And when we spoke then, she was getting ready to go run the Mount Everest Marathon. I was kind of obsessed and just very curious all about it. And so she agreed to come back and give us a very thorough and complete recap of all the things. And there's so much leading up to the race. Just getting to base camp of Mount Everest is this amazing adventure and challenge in and of itself. So I wanted to know what she was eating, what she was doing, wearing, all of those things. That's what we're talking about now. And I will put a link in the show notes to her book like I said, Ultramarathon Mom, and it's available on Amazon. And the previous podcast that she was on is episode 80. But you don't necessarily need to listen to that one before this. You should go back if you missed it, though, and listen, because she has some amazing stories on that as well. Um, But yeah, let's get into it and talk to Holly. Hello, and welcome back to the show. The last time we talked, you were about to leave for the Mount Everest Marathon. And now you're back and not only completed this amazing challenge, but also got first place international female. So congratulations. Um, How do you feel? Um, I feel really good. I feel rejuvenated. It was such a great trip. Um, It was three weeks before I left. I was a little bit ambivalent about leaving and sad because I knew I would leave my kids for three weeks and I wasn't sure how that was going to work. They still had a week of school and my husband, although he was here, he was still at work. So um, it was pretty much relying on my older daughters to take care of my son and neighbors and um, just, and I took off. <laughs> so I was a little bit worried. Um, but then when I was there, I kind of shut all that out and, um, really, really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And so how yeah. did they, um, feel about that? Cause I know that they obviously are super proud of you. Yeah. Were they, yeah. I don't know, were concerned, worried, excited for you? No, they were definitely excited for mm-hmm. me. They were in good hands. Obviously I was more worried than they were. Um, and they had one week of school and then they had two weeks of vacation and then they were at my, um, in-laws. And so they were well taken care of and they were having fun and doing their own thing. So, so once they were there, I knew I had nothing to worry about. They sent me photos and videos, which I try not to look at so much because it broke my heart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, um, yeah, they were happy and I was happy. So it's, it's all good. Win-win. Good. Remind us of their ages again. 10, 12, 15, and 16. Mm-hmm. So the older daughters, you know, they can take care of themselves. It's just my 10-year-old baby boy um, that I had some concerns about. But, um, yeah, they stick together, you know. I love We're it. family. Yeah. I love it. This is super exciting. Um, So I don't even know where to begin because I feel like, well, I just use the word epic. <laughs> But I know that you use the word extreme, like everything was very extreme with the entire journey to getting there. And then the race 
what was it like, I guess, starting from the very beginning and you're packing and you can't pack too much stuff, but you really do Mm. need a lot because it's an extreme, you know, kind of trip. How did you handle that? Well, we were limited to 15 kilograms and uh, for all of our gear. And you have to obviously take um, your sleeping bag, your thermal mattress, your winter jacket, all your running gear, some safety equipment, all your clothes. And most people also had some food with them, some protein bars or things like that, because we weren't really sure what we were going to get. So 15 kilograms was cutting it pretty tight. So that was the first battle to, to tackle. We had two days in Kathmandu and which was really nice. The first day we did some sightseeing and went to a Hindu temple where they, um, cremate, uh, um, bodies right, pretty much right after they die, like within four hours. So the culture shock was there essentially on the first day. Mm-hmm. And we sat on this riverbank and watched these ceremonies where these bodies were decorated in flowers and then they were set on fire and burned and then the ashes pushed into the river. So we were, we were really, um, thrown into cold water there. Oh my gosh. Um, when you, yeah. <laughs> I, when you first said the uh, body's cremated, I literally pictured like a building with like a factory, <laughs> no. like not no, it's outside, outside <laughs> for right. anybody and everybody to take part in. Um, yeah, the culture is so very different. Um, and you have to really appreciate that, you know, and, and respect that. Um, and then the next day we went right into the mountains, but, um, that was an, another adventure in itself because that was this flight on the small aircraft. It was a 15 seater and we fly to Lukla and that's the landing bond. That's uh, the landing, um, bond that's German <laughs> mix up the languages. <laughs> um, it's a very short, what do you call it? A, ra- a runway. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's, it's pretty dangerous. They say it's the, one of the most dangerous airports in the world. So I was a little bit worried about flying in there and it's only open during good weather. And our flight was delayed six hours and we finally took off and we were in flight. It's supposed to be a 30 minute flight. After 15 minutes, they said the weather window has closed in the mountains and we had to turn around and go back to Kathmandu. So that was disappointed after six hours sitting yeah. there waiting. So we went back to Kathmandu, uh, taxied around on the runway a bit, and then took off again after re- um, refueling. And this time we got in, thank goodness. But the weather in the Himalaya have been has been terrible recently. And so a lot of flights have been canceled and delayed. People have been coming in and out with helicopters. And um, so we were really happy to finally get in there. Yeah, it sounds like a tight window, too. If you had waited six hours and then 15 minutes into finally going, they were like, never mind. Okay, now go. (laughs) It just seems like it's very, very short little pocket of good weather, I guess. Exactly. We were in two airplanes, our group, and the first plane got in 10 minutes before us. Yeah. And then we had to turn around and showed up a an hour later. That's what I was going to ask you. Um, cause I know that you said that there was uh, 15 people on this plane. This group, was this a tour group or how does it work for people that are going to this race? Um, do you have to, uh, I would assume do it with the tour group or. Yeah, there were actually several groups that offered the tour okay. and I was with, um, Himalayan adventure or something. I don't remember exactly the name of the group. 
but you can get there different ways. And in our group, we were 25 people and we had five guides and five porters and a team of yaks carrying our things and a camera crew and a doctor that was with us the entire trek. Oh, is the doctor part of the actual, um, what Uh, they kind of offer? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, people underestimate what it's like up there in the mountains and it is actually quite dangerous. And while we were there during the three weeks, three, uh, people died on Mount Everest in that time, two of them fell and one died from high altitude sickness. Mm -hmm. And even while we were just there trekking up the mountain, the rescue helicopter came in constantly. I mean, probably 20 times a day came in and out. People um, have uh, high altitude sickness because they ascend too quickly. And our group, we actually took 10 days for the ascent with three days of acclimatization stops in between, which is, you know, as you're doing that, you're like, this is so slow. Can't we just get there? But I would say 90% of the group suffered from some symptoms of high altitude sickness. So there is a purpose behind that. And the doctor was there and and evaluated us several times along the way to check our oxygen concentration in the blood to make sure that nobody was in danger. And it was, it, we were successful. We all made it up there. That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so the doctor kind of is checking in with everyone just to make Mm -hmm. sure that you guys are all okay to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people had stomach problems and headaches and, and he had a plethora of medicine with him to take care of us all. Did you have any altitude sickness? I did not. I was very thankful and lucky. I was one of the few that did not, not sure why that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty random. I think there's some genetics have some, some play in it. It's not just necessary fitness level because obviously marathon runners are all pretty in pretty good shape. So there's other roles that, that take play in there. Yeah, for sure. And so everyone in your group at least was able to kind of stay with the group and keep moving forward. Right. A couple of them had to stop and stay overnight at lower altitudes, but then they caught up with us later. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the big battle was the altitude sickness. There was also the food is not what I'm used to at home. I've been vegan for six years. And um, I, t- I told you before, I had already uh, integrated some cheese in my diet before I left because I knew that when I th- was there, I would not be able to be vegan. <laughs> and I was so right. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just carbohydrates. And uh, for breakfast, we had oatmeal and toast. And then we had, you know, fried rice, pasta, potatoes, um, French fries. That was pretty much what we ate for two weeks <laughs> on the trek up the mountain. Oh my yeah. gosh. That it was, yeah, but, I mean, you're carb loading, I guess. <laughs> you're carb loading. You had to. I mean, I was starving. I felt like I was constantly eating, but constantly hungry. Uh-huh. And I lost three kilograms, you know, um, what, seven pounds in the three weeks. Yeah, because you're so active. You know, it's you need those it's, extra calories. Yeah. yeah. Even though it was, it, it's not what I'm used to active. You know, normally I go running every day and there, for two weeks, all we were doing was slow hiking up the mountain, but it's a different, it's, you know, aerobic exercise. It's slow. And I think you also 
um, with less oxygen, you burn more calories, your body's working. So that also played a role. Yeah. What about water? Because I drink massive amounts of water every day. And I know <laughs> whenever I go anywhere that the water has to be controlled, or you have to be mindful of like, yeah. it just kind of stresses me out. How did you guys have water? That was a challenge. Um, down lower on the mountain, you could get bottled water for relatively cheap. But as you got higher and higher, it got very expensive. So what they did in the organization, they cooked water for us or they boiled water in the lodges for us at night and then we would fill up our water bottles and it was also very cold so it, we, we used them twice we took the the water bottles and put it in our sleeping bags at night to keep us warm and then drank it the next day i also had a bottle that had an integrated filter a charcoal filter in it so i tended to use that and the because I didn't really trust the boiled water 100%. I knew mm -hmm. they boiled it, but then I wasn't sure how long it actually would sit there or what kind of containers it was then stored in or who was handling it. So then I also had these chemical um, tablets uh, that purified the water, and I would use that um, in addition. Yeah. So just to play it safe. Is that, I mean, kind of an old trick? I know that you've traveled a lot of different places and and run a lot of races is this something that you've done in the past no this okay. was new to me um i've always had bottled water um but of course i had done a little research before i went there and knew what to expect and and had these these purification tablets with me and the the water bottle too mm-hmm and you said yeah. they gave you this at the lodge where were you as you're kind of going up the mountain and stopping periodically and making that mm -hmm. ascent. Where were you staying at night? Where were you guys sleeping? We had lodges each night. They were very basic. So we were given a double room, which simply had two beds in it and two pillows. If we were lucky, there was a blanket on it, but there wasn't much more. So we still had to use our sleeping bags and, and blankets. Oops. Yeah, they and they were not heated, the lodges. Mm-hmm except in the main dining room and only at night. So we would get there at about three o'clock in the afternoon and it would start to cool down and it was cold. And it wasn't until about five o'clock in the afternoon that they would light a fire and we would pretty much all huddle around it. But as soon as you leave the main dining room and went to your, your bedroom, it was cold mm -hmm. and the bathrooms are cold. And yeah, so that was, that was another uh, challenge to get over. Yeah. And was it was yeah. it a community bathroom? Yeah, there was a community bathroom. We had um if we were lucky, twenty to thirty people would share a bathroom and in Everest Base Camp it was horrendous. We were probably a hundred people um using two toilets and um the toilets were essentially barrels that were sunk down into a pile of rocks and they were just squat toilets and surrounded by a, a small tent. And when you have a hundred people using them and half of them already have stomach problems, you can imagine um, I was sometimes just in tears mm -hmm. because I need to use the bathroom and I didn't want to go. Um, that was, that was really very, very difficult for especially a lot of the women. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I saw, I saw you kind of describe that in the, in the post. And I was like, that is very <laughs> just yeah. unpleasant. 
very difficult, very difficult. Um, uh, but you I, have to get through it. Yeah. Well, I think I had read something too that you said your sleeping bag didn't seem to be warm enough. You had to borrow something. Right. Um, I noticed that the first night as we were climbing was that the sleeping bag I had was supposed to essentially keep me warm to about 20, 25 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, it didn't. I was cold at night. And I had also bought a merino wool liner. And so I had that inside it. And I was dressed in, in you know, tights and, and, a, and a long sleeve top. And I was still cold. So um, I knew I was going to have a problem. So I talked to the, our guide and he ended up loaning a sleeping bag, an expedition grade sleeping bag for me from one of the lodges. And then they, they would bring it back afterwards. And so um, I... As we got higher and it got colder, I had the merino wool liner inside my uh, midweight sleeping bag, inside the expedition grade sleeping bag, and with my hot water bottles in there too. And mm-hmm. then I was I was just fine. But <laughs> I mean, it was also still um, it could have been warmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it was cold. And in, in base camp, we were at about single digits during the night. So uh-huh. it was cold. Freezing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is yeah. a dumb question, but at the lodges, were there showers? Was there showers at all over the 10 days? <laughs> um, I think I showered three times, okay. which was more than a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but that was also difficult because you had to pay for your showers and the showers weren't like what we're used to. They were usually in some kind of uh, back room somewhere and it was ice cold and then there was no heat and there was no hair dryers. So um, if you, you would have to pretty much time it just before they would heat the dining room at mm-hmm. night so that you could go in there and dry your hair and warm up. So um, <laughs> there was just so many things that um, added to the adventure. Yeah, you're <laughs> really roughing it. And then I think it makes it that much harder when you are having to ask very athletic things of your body and it's not the ideal situation for fueling rest Mm, all of those kinds of things so you're trekking up the mountain how many days did it take you to get to base camp it took us 10 days and then we're in base camp for two days base camp is very um it's not what i expected i expected it to be this beautiful snowy tent filled camp uh with with visions of everest in the background and it was not it was right next to the kumbu glacier but it was on it was also on the glacier but the glacier was covered in in stones and sand so it was very stony and dirty and very hilly there was no almost no flat space at all so finding spots to put the tents was a challenge too and then to have your tent flat and so that you're not rolling into the person next to you um it was just very inhospitable and the stones were i I thought i was going to sprain an ankle just walking around the camp Mm mm-hmm they weren't they they weren't fixed in the ground they were rolling all over the place and um and then you don't always have vision uh, view of everest you see the the kumbu glacier this this ice field that's well known for the climbers what they have to cross to get up there um it was absolutely breathtaking but it was a very like i said inhospitable place um more than two days i really wouldn't have wanted to spend there 
Yeah. Is there anything there kind of set like restrooms or I don't know, <laughs> anything that is always there? No, I mean, they put it up for the expedition season and then they take it down. And we were right at the end of the season. So they'd already started taking down things. All the ladders from the glacier field, they had already taken down and the camp was going to be dismantled after we left. And like the bathrooms, like I said, you know, they um, they built them up there. And when the buckets are full, they'll take it down and build another one someplace else. And by build, is it, is there a tent? Or, I'm trying to picture this. Is there a tent around it? Like, where's the, how is there a privacy situation? <laughs> yeah, there's a tent around it, but um, it, it's like a heavy canvas, but it doesn't really stay closed. I mean, you, you don't have much private space there. <laughs> and, and no, usually you, I would go with my girlfriend and say, you know, um, stand out there and guard it for me. <laughs> and right. Vice versa. Yeah. yeah. And there's not a lot of them that you said you were sharing with how many people kind of. Um, there were a lot of people at base camp. And in our group, I think we had about uh, two toilets for about 100 people, mm-hmm. which is is almost inhumane. But that's that's just what you have to put up with there. Yeah. Is there always and, a long line for that? No, okay. <laughs> you don't spend much time in there. And no one wants to hang out. We're trying to avoid it as, as much possible. as possible. Exactly. That is very true. Yeah. yeah. I don't and know. And then they had a dining tents, which fit about 20 people and long tables. And um, uh, it, it's just, they're ice cold, these tents. So you go in wearing everything you have. And mm-hmm. on the table, they had, you know, sugar and honey and, and peanut butter, which was really nice to see. Um, and But the honey, it froze overnight. So you couldn't really use it for your toast in the morning. And then by the time it melted in the afternoon, you didn't need it anymore because you don't use it on pasta. Oh, I would have. <laughs> but... <laughs> Just, just like, get a spoon. Just like just go it into my mouth. Like, come on, yeah. I need something, you guys. This uh, is something so rough. Sweet. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh! How many people yeah. stayed in each tent? Two people. Okay. Yeah, I was with my girlfriend who I'd run the marathon de Sabas with two years ago, and so we shared a lodge uh, room together and shared the tent together, and it was really great to have her with me. You know, you needed some support. Yes. But our whole group was fabulous. We were from, I don't know how many different countries. Uh, The the whole um, race was 30 different countries, I believe, and our group was probably 15. A fantastic group of very interesting people, and we all got along great and just had a lot of fun at night Mm -hmm. um, playing cards sometimes and and just along the trek. You spend a lot of time with these people. So, Yeah. I can imagine it being super interesting, awesome people. Was this kind Mm -hmm. of something for other people that is like a bucket list item or just some adventure they kind of wanted to go on? Did there seem to be kind of a common theme um, between the people you met? Uh, Most of the people were pretty everyday people, which is surprising because they, if you would just meet them and start talking to them, you would never think they would do something so extreme. But I think that's what's so interesting is that inside these people is really this desire for adventure and to get out there. The draw for most of the people was not necessarily the marathon. It was base camp Mm -hmm. because normally only expedition climbers that go uh, to one of the peaks in the area are allowed to sleep overnight at base camp. You're allowed to trek there, but not to sleep there. So for us, 
the marathon allowed this this exception for us, and so that's really what brought a lot of us there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is awesome. So yeah, it was awesome. I, and I'll definitely link to your post because the pictures of base camp, it looks like you were on a different planet. It exactly. really is so rocky and it just looks yeah. so barren. It's very, very impressive that you yeah. were living in these conditions and then going to run a marathon. Yeah. I mean, once I finally got to the start of the marathon, it was so great. It was like, yes, let's get out of here. (laughs) Now for the easy part. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Finally run again after two weeks of just just slow climbing. It just felt so good to get going. Uh Uh-huh. So how far or where is the start of the marathon from base camp? It was right in base camp. Okay. But it was crazy. I've never seen a starting line line like this before. They did have like a red band, but it was across like a big pile of rocks. And we're like, well, where do we stand? And we were really just trying to find some place where we could stand and not fall into. There was a river on one side. It was like there's ice melt rivers everywhere. And on the other side was a a hillside of of ice. You're on the glacier. So the starting line was just really chaotic. And and uh, you couldn't really see where the trail was leading. There were some flags that were um, that were stuck into the rocks, and I figured, okay, well, I'm not going to be the first one out of the starting block anyway, so I'll just I'll just follow follow the others. But um, it, it was almost ridiculous the, the starting line. Atmosphere. About about how many people ran the marathon? The marathon we were about 150. There okay. was also a half marathon and an ultra 60 kilometer ultra but there were there were very few people in it because the marathon itself was was like an ultra mm-hmm. and mm. that was, i'm glad that you brought up the little flags so was it marked the entire route with flags or how did that work in case people got a little spread out yeah, it was marked with flags okay um but there aren't too many trails in there there's not too many places where you can get lost so it, it was pretty, it was pretty easy to follow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what shoes did you wear? Did you have to change up your running shoes for that? I wore the same shoes to go up the mountain as to run down. And there were Innovates. And I had looked at a lot of shoes before I went because that's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't want to bring two different pairs of shoes. And that worked out perfectly. You know, there were uh, trail running shoes for, for, stony and technical courses and it worked out perfect Mm -hmm. no blisters at all oh wow that's awesome Mm. what did you eat race day morning did they have anything different from the normal breakfast uh i had no (laughs) there were not too many options (laughs) we had oatmeal every day so that's what i had i had oatmeal and black tea and i think toast so I think I had a piece of toast. I try not to eat so much. I had gels and sports bars with me and a camelback and my own water. Um, so I had that with me. I knew that along the way I wouldn't have to worry about eating anything. Um, yeah, you just take what's there and make the best of it. You can't think about it too much. Well, mm. what was the oh, no. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm going back to the honey. What did you put anything in the oatmeal? Was it like sweetened at all? I did put sugar on it. Okay. Um, normally, I don't use sugar, but um, you need to treat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> 
the oh dual pleasures in life. It's like you know? the understatement of the year yeah. given the conditions in which you had been living. It's like it's a- crazy. You sit there in the dining <laughs> tent and you hear outside, you hear an avalanche. Oh and so everybody runs outside to see where it is, how big it is. Uh-huh. Is it going to stop before it reaches base camp? And this, you're always on edge. Uh-huh. And we were sleeping on a glacier. And during the night, you hear the glacier creak under your tent. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of that, did you um, I know you took a lot of pictures. Did you do any videos or who was the camera crew with that you said um, was on the Tour they well. were with the organization okay. and they put together a short video already and they're planning on putting a, a longer feature video and that would eventually be on the Everest Marathon webpage. Oh, and funny. yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So off my blog and off my Facebook site, I have a lot of photos. Okay, cool. I'll definitely mm-hmm. um, link to that too, because you do okay. need to see this. It is hard to picture um, just how desolate this looks especially considering you you think at least under conditions of a marathon there's a lot of people there's a lot of activity but the conditions are just not super hospitable to people so you're just working with bare bones yeah just do the best you can essentially we're all in the same boat so so where was your stuff when you went to go run the marathon they carried it down okay Right. So these poor Sherpas, you know, they had a long day, too. So I'm running down and they are running down, too, with 30 kilograms on their back Mm -hmm. to try and get us our stuff so that we have it at night when we get down there. Yeah. They did a great job. It was really well organized. And the people there were were just wonderful, so peaceful and so thankful to have us there. You know, that that provides them with jobs and it provides them the opportunity to do something that they love and be in the mountains. Yeah. So um, I, you know, you don't really feel guilty about having them carry your stuff. They were happy. They were happy. We were happy. So it, it worked out well. Mm-hmm. Do they speak mm. English or how do you kind of communicate with them? Yeah, they all speak pretty English pretty well. We had one guide who was deaf, which I honestly didn't even know he was deaf until the last couple of days. I mean, he didn't speak. Mm-hmm. Um used a lot of hand signals and made noises. And I just thought his English was poor, but then <laughs> he was deaf, but he seemed to understand everything. He he knew what we wanted when we, when we said it. And, um, yeah, just, just fabulous people. They never complained. They worked real hard and gave us everything that we needed until we were done for the day. And then they finally sat down at eight, usually around eight o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. So hats off to them. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And mm. how did you feel for the race at this point? You've been traveling a long time out of your element, different food, mm. different sleeping conditions. Did you feel like you were ready to run a marathon at that point? I was definitely ready to get going. Um, I was a little bit concerned in the morning because, like I said, the situation with the bathrooms was horrendous. And in the morning, I could not use the toilet. And you know how terrible that is for yes. a marathon runner. Yes. <laughs> um, but what can you do? And so um, I got through it and it thankfully didn't bother me. Um, 
other than that, I felt great. I was worried about the altitude and running and having maybe being short of breath. That wasn't an issue. The The main factor I noticed with the low oxygen was that your muscles are tired. They feel like you've had leg day the day before. You feel like you've had um, a really hard workout. But, um, you know, in a marathon anyway, after... 10 miles you feel like that so it didn't really get any worse mm-hmm. and, and um the, the the hardest part about the marathon I, mean, I do a lot of trail runs in the alps here and so i was it wasn't unfamiliar what to expect on the course <laughs> one of the toughest things was that there were yaks yak caravans along the way these are these giant animals like cows with the long fur and the huge horns and they carry all this equipment up and down the the mountain then you had to get around them. And the rule was obviously to stay on the inside of the mountain so that um, they don't push you off. Uh-huh. Um, but it's still there. They're very um, nervous animals. So if you try to come running by, they get um, aggravated. And one of the runners that was with me got um, gored in his hand as he was running by. Um, so you had to be really careful and, one time I got caught behind a, a group of about 10 animals and could not get by for about 10 minutes. So that was really frustrating. Oh my gosh. Um, so you're yeah. just kind of walking behind them, not able to go around mm-hmm. waiting for just a little spot. For opportunities, mm-hmm. right. If there's two or three animals, usually you can get by one and then get by the other. But if you, if there's 10, you can't get caught in between. That's way too dangerous. Mm-hmm. So you have to wait until you can have just an all out attack and, and pass them all. Yeah. Um, so that was really the biggest, the toughest part of the race. What the guy that got gored in the hand, he yeah. just startled one like what they were just cut off guard or. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the the animal just swung his head, and you know he was he was frightened. Uh-huh. So the guy put out his hand to protect himself, and then that's what happened. And then of course he was scared to death to pass again. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, un- a little unique situation yeah. to this race. Yeah. No, you don't find that in too many city marathons. No, not at all. No. And so were you for the most part? running by yourself was there anyone else around you um about half and half i was Mm -hmm. alone a lot and um during the middle i had a couple of guys that i was with for a while and then towards the end i was alone again um after this situation with the 10 yak caravan i lost about 10 minutes and around kilometer 35 um another woman came up behind me. I knew that I was the first international woman. Somebody had told me that along the way. So I was pretty motivated and excited. And then uh, I was slowed down. And then kilometer 35, a woman came up behind me. And it was an Austrian who I'd met in base camp. And I knew she lives in Salzburg and runs in the mountains. And I thought, "Uh Mm -hmm. uh-oh. And I thought, okay, well, second place is also good. We'll see what happens. And, um, but then she never passed me and she started dropping back a little bit. And so I really just dug down and gave it all I had. And um, even I just stopped quick at the checkpoints, never stopped for water again and never stopped to catch my breath on the ascents. And I just pushed through and um, it came into the finish as the first international woman. And um, I just broke down in tears. It was um, very, very emotional 
Yeah, congratulations. Um, and it's, it's that much more when you really just feel like you work so hard for it. You, you had to make a choice yeah. and you went for yeah. it. I went for it. I, I figured, hey, I have nothing to lose. And um, it's a long day. And at the end of the day, I can sit down and relax. But right now I've got some work to do and push through. I took seven hours, 39 minutes and uh, felt good, felt uh-huh. really good. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. That's so awesome. Did you have any goal for this? Because it is really hard to set a goal when you're not familiar with what the conditions are going to be. Had you right. set a time goal at all? I had looked at the previous results in the past year. So I knew a pretty much a range of where I could finish in and that it would probably be about double my marathon time on the road. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what I figured about um, between seven and a half and eight hours. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, yeah, you were right I mean, there, the yeah. weather was fine. It wasn't too hot. I mean, the sun, it was freezing cold at the start and then the sun came out and as you got lower, I knew it would warm up, but it didn't get too warm. It stayed overcast and it was really, really good weather, you know, rain. Mm. Yeah. Did you have to take any clothes off? Were you, you know, bundled up at the start and then wanted to Yeah, I get had rid- gloves at the start and I had a, um, a long sleeve half zip top on which I had to take off at about 18 kilometers. So um, then I just stuck that in my backpack and ran in a base layer. And then the, the race shirt, we were all required to wear the race, the race shirt. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. It was windy, but uh, more would have been too much. I kept the hat on to cover my ears, just, you know, a running cap. Yeah. um, Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That yeah, is was awesome. super fun. <laughs> and so what so now you you finished this race. That's super awesome, but I'm assuming what was the finish line like? Was there any sort of beer garden? <laughs> uh it wasn't too a much DJ. Going on. I'm just gonna <laughs> <laughs> No. Um they did have some food for us, you know, more carbohydrates. Uh I couldn't really eat much. It was very cold. I just wanted to go down and get a shower. I did that, and then I came back to the finish and watched the rest of the runners come in. Um, We were all exhausted, so we didn't do much partying that night. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we had a few more days together, so then we celebrated after that. But then the adventure was still not over because we're still pretty high up in the Himalayas, and we need to get back to Kathmandu. And um, the weather had been real bad. So, like I said in the beginning with the flights, that was troublesome getting in. Well, it's just as troublesome getting out. And there were several hundred people that were waiting to, to get out of there. And we knew this. And we said, pretty much the whole group said, why do we trek two days down in bad weather and then wait? and hope to get a flight out to Kathmandu. So we all opted for a helicopter evacuation from where we were in Namche uh, directly to Kathmandu. And it was, we had to pay for that out of our own pocket. Mm -hmm. It's about $700. Um, But everybody was, was willing just because we were just done. We Mm -hmm. just wanted to get out of there and get down to some good weather. Yeah. Whoa, that's <laughs> that yeah. like a big uh, uh, kind of a big ticket item to just decide. But yeah, I guess at that point you are like, this is Ready this makes go. the most sense with your time yeah. and effort yeah. and all of that. 
How many people yeah. go on each helicopter? How did they break that up? Five or six. Okay. But it's so poorly organized. And there was a helicopter landing area where randomly the helicopters would fly in and out. And at one point there were six of them landing and taking off and there was not much safety. They would yell to us and be like another five over here. And you're standing on the edge of the field and one helicopter lands about 20 feet from you. And then another one comes over your head and lands behind you. And <laughs> and you kind of have to watch out for yourself. There was nobody there to say, um, you know, this is the safety zone. It was, you know, use your head and be smart. And <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. really, really scary. Helicopters, I mean, yeah. are no joke. You have to be no. so And there were no seatbelts in them. No. We just packed in and uh, said a prayer and we were off. Oh, my gosh. How did they, um, how did you pay for that? If it's going to be... Um, they brought us back to uh, our hotel in Kathmandu and then they did it over. Uh, we paid visa. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It was a private um, organization. So. So you were able it to wasn't pay. directly at the airport. Yeah. I didn't have to pay cash. I didn't have to have that much cash. On well, me, yeah, I, like, I don't think anyone would, you know, and yeah. No, that's, no. And I don't exp- imagine the Sherpas with the little square on their iPhone <laughs> that you can just <laughs> right. slide through. Like, how does that work? <laughs> no, um, they're not that advanced yet. <laughs> and so you no. get back to Kathmandu and is it just go home or is there anything else before you guys? Uh, we had another couple of full days there and um, did some more sightseeing and there was a pool at the hotel. So really just relax. And um, then at night went out to they're, they have some nice restaurants in Kathmandu, and then we finally got some real good food, um, some vegetables and uh, some white rice and drink a beer, have a glass of wine. Because up in the mountains, you have to avoid alcohol, obviously, and coffee also. So we were really roughing it. What? So then back in Kathmandu, oh. we could let loose. Yeah. did the, I was actually going to ask you if they had coffee up there because you mentioned black tea. Do, hmm. Did they have coffee before the race or in the mornings with breakfast? They they had it. You could have ordered it, um, but they didn't. They didn't offer it to uh-huh. us, and they told us to avoid it. So everyone did. It was. I mean, it was serious up there. Yeah. I mean, you when you see the, the rescue mindful. helicopters coming in and out, you don't mess around. Yeah. Mm. Is that because you might get dehydrated? Right. Okay. It's the dehydration and then you have the headache and then um, it just would progress. And we saw a woman up there that had a cerebral edema and that's not something that any of us wanted to experience. She was in agony. We don't know if she survived. It is really Uh, serious. You have to be respectful of it. And I always even think for just doing a marathon, you need to respect the distance. You know, even if you've done it yeah. so many times, you have to take care of your body, you know, and yeah. and be mindful of this being a very challenging athletic thing That's that true. you're asking. It's, it just takes it up so much more under That's those conditions. True. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What was <laughs> awesome about Kathmandu? I'm not. This is kind of funny. I don't know if they have this there, but there you, this is all I know of this place. <laughs> I used to watch this reality show called 19 Kids and Counting, and one of the daughters 
this family had 19 kids. And apparently okay. they were still <laughs> potentially counting for more. Um, okay. And one of the daughters was kind of courting is what they call it. They're very religious. And so they didn't date really. They, they would be courting. And right. she married someone who was a missionary in Kathmandu. And so she went to go visit him one episode. Okay. And this okay. is all I've seen of it is a lot of monkeys and a lot of yeah. colorful fabrics. <laughs> What right. was it really like? Um, it's a third world country uh-huh. and the city is, uh, the infrastructure is horrible. And the streets are in terrible condition. Um, and the the traffic patterns ha- made absolutely no sense to me. Um, so you really, you would risk your life to get behind a, a wheel, the wheel of a car there. Um, there's also a lot of bikes on the road. It's it's a wild city, um, but it has it has something. Uh, the people there are very peaceful, um, calm people. So you come there from the Western countries and you're totally stressed out, and you get into a conversation with the Nepalese, and you immediately come down, and you find a, a little bit of relaxation and peace, and you find that everywhere there. Um, there's a lot of temples to see, like you said, the a lot of colors, and these are the prayer flags. And the a lot of the temples are both Buddhist and Hindu mixed. So you see like Buddha and all these, the wonderful five colors from the, the Hindu religion. And they live peacefully together. Like I said, it's a very peaceful place. There are um, very dirty areas. Everything seems to function, but there are also places where Westerners can go and get a great meal or a nice coffee shop and have their um, internet cafes. And there's a nightlife there. We even went to a nightclub one night and went dancing. And um, it's a big city there. They offer something for everyone. Mm-hmm. Just, um, just very different from what we know. I love it. And to what, is there any food that it's known for there or anything that kind of you tried that you thought was good? Uh, they have one dish called dalbat, which is a very standard dish, and that's uh, lentils uh, with rice. Mm-hmm. And um, they have their own local spices in it. Um, it's pretty spicy, and that was absolutely delicious. I could have lived on that for two weeks. Unfortunately, we got a lot of pasta instead, <laughs> but they do have good cuisine. I love it. What was your favorite mm. part? <laughs> Of the whole trip? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Besides winning yeah. the race, <laughs> I feel like that's a given. <laughs> no, I definitely have to say the mountains. I mean, you stand there and you're surrounded by mountains that are 7,000, 8,000, 9,000 meters high. And um, yeah, Everest is 8,800 something meters high. So you've never seen anything that high over your head anywhere. And it's hard to imagine. And you just, you just know the history there and just this aura. And um, it's, uh, it's very, very moving. Mm -hmm. Um, You could just sit there on a hillside and, and look around you all day long and not get bored. Um, it is mystical and, and, and wonderful. And that, um, will always be with me. I love it. Congratulations. <laughs> what, so what is next for you? 
Um, I had planned to go to Mont Blanc uh, in Chamonix in two weeks and run a marathon there in the mountains. But I just canceled that yesterday because um, actually just because I don't want to leave my family again, I would be away only for five days, but I was just gone for three weeks. And I noticed uh, that my son needs me now. And so that was just a decision that I made for us. Uh-huh. And um, But I'll find a new adventure soon. Yeah. And yeah. They're, are they off for the summer right now? Not yet. They have only six weeks off in the summer here okay. in Germany. They, But they have quite a bit more time off during the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, they're still in school until the end of July. Okay. And then six weeks off and then it pulls up again. And then six weeks off. We'll be in the U.S. for three weeks in August. Oh, that's fun. Can't wait. Are you yeah. going to run any races? Uh, probably some local ones. Um Nothing big. Just just have fun. Just uh-huh. relax. <laughs> Vacation. Yeah. Fun, fun. And is this yeah. adventure going to be the next book? It will be the next book. Yes. I've already started writing it. I'm so excited to write it because the stories, like I said, it just was extreme. It just every single day was an extreme adventure. And I'm trying to get it down now while it's all in my head. And I'd like to also include quite a bit about the people that I was there with because they are so interesting. Like I said, they're average everyday people by day and, and they have this other side to them that comes out. And um, it was really uh, a good experience for me to meet so many different types of people. Well, I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for that next book. Thank you so much for coming back. You can follow Holly on Instagram or on her blog, that is hollyzimmerman.com and her Instagram is the Ultra Marathon Mom. I will put links to both of these in the show notes. And now it's time for the awards. Today's awards are actually potential awards that can go to you if you run one of the Lexus lace-up races and win. Boom. How about that? I am a huge fan of the Lexus Lace-Up Race Series. I worked with them last year and ran, I think, three of the races in their series, but there are four. And they have given me a discount code for running repeat listeners, followers. You get 10% off with code RER10 for any or all of these races. And I wanted to make a point to mention it because the first one is in September. So it's coming up and each race has multiple distances. So it's It really depends on the location. Most of the locations have a half marathon and 10K or 5K. The first one, like I said, is September 8th in Orange County. Then there is a race October 20th and 21st in Ventura. In November, there is the Palos Verdes that I did last year. It's gorgeous, a little challenging of a course, but again, amazingly beautiful. Um, and in December, there is a race in Riverside. And last year, I did the half there. And I think there is a 10K or a 5K, but my mom did the other distance as well. So it's super fun. After the race, this is part of how I think I got in a partnership with them and got this discount code is I really raved about them after I did the first race, because after the race, everyone gets a food ticket and there are food trucks there and you have your choice. And there is always like 
a healthy option, and then some fun options, anything from there's been smoothies to kind of amazing burgers or breakfast burritos. It's been all over the place. There's been a variety. I've been to all of these races, I think, at least at some points, but they're super fun. And like I said, I have this discount code. And if you run all of the races, you get a special medal. So that's an extra little award, right? So many awards, the potential for so many awards. But the first one is in September. So you got to get going. If you're going to run it and make sure that you are running it strong, get to training. I will put a link in the show notes as well to each of these races. You can check it out for more information. Let me know if you have any questions. And like I said, there is 10% off with code RER10. RER stands for Runny Repeat. Boom. And again, if you have a question for me on running, eating, life, watermelon, the robot, because that's what I'm doing right now as I'm saying all of these things, let me know. Send it over. I will put links in the show notes to that info, my voicemail number, and email. But I super appreciate you listening. I know this was a longer episode. Got a little random there in the warm-up, but sometimes that happens. Sometimes the warm-up is uncomfortable, especially when you're listening to a podcast from some rando rambling about their love language. You're welcome. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. Have a great run. Thank you for listening to the Run Eat Repeat podcast. For more information, check out runeatrepeat.com.